0: I think you're free to go. Marvin, is it possible you could turn the lights down for me a little bit? Thank you. Awesome. Okay. come to the next letter in the series of letters in Revelation, the letter to the church of Thyatira. And we find the story in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to that and follow along. Write this letter to the angel of the church of Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and I can see your constant improvement in all these things. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, therefore I will throw her on a bed of suffering and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from their evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. And I will give to you each of, whatever, of you. I will sorry. And I will give to you again. And I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira, who have not followed this false teaching, deeper truths as they call them, depths of Satan actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority as I received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone who's with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Let's just pray for a moment. So I pray that um, you would open our hearts to your Word this morning that you would take away all of me and that all that would come through would be what your Spirit would say to us this morning here in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the fourth letter. The word Thyatira means semiramis, or continual sacrifice. It's a picture of a labor of love, a people who are so captivated by Jesus that acts of service just flow from them. Jesus himself here is introduced as the Son of God, and the fact that his eyes are pictured as flames of fire and his feet like polished bronze implies that because we have been judged by Christ, and are free, we are now free to do the life-giving works of Christ. I'm also proposing to you this morning that the angel of this church relates to the spirit of counsel. The spirit of counsel that brings the authority of heaven and earth. That life-giving authority that restores our ability to rule in life. Our inheritance from our heavenly Father that brings authority in earth. Just as Jesus released that authority to His disciples and us at the end of His gospel, at the end of His life, authority to go into all the world, to bring the good news, the good news of Jesus. Cheer is one of the same of that authority, the authority to bring Christ's healing to the world with the testimony of His light. The fact that His light dwells within us gives us that authority to bring healing to the broken places of this world we live in. These are not works which are somehow derived from trying to please God, but works that rise up within us. We've talked about this before, from that light that dwells within us, from the source of that life, Jesus Himself. So, a little bit about Thyatira. It was a wealthy town in the northern part of Lydia on the river Lysus. It stood near to the borders of another country of, of Mysa, Mysia, and in fact some early writers thought that um, it belonged to Mysia or otherwise. Its early history is not well known because it wasn't until it was re-found by, refounded by a man by the name of Seleucius nicator that's a mouthful, um, in 301 B.C. Up until then, it was a very small, insignificant town. It did not stand on any of the Greek trade routes but it uh, stood between Pergamos and Sardis, about 27 miles from Sardis, and derived its wealth from the Lyceus Valley, in which it rapidly became a commercial center. Dyeing was a major industry in this city. That's dyeing with an E, by the way. And in particular, the purple color dye, which is now known, in fact, as Turkish red. It was a large industry in that town. But it was particularly noted as or its trade guilds. And because of the Greek gods that were worshipped in that place, it was a requirement of their workers, or the members of those guilds, to practice idol worship and to practice some of the other illicit goings-on in order for them to keep their jobs. Christians taught against Such things, and therefore, the persecution in Thyatira was particularly intense. So, as we see, this letter is once again written to a church in the middle of a city full of idol worship, full of sexual immorality, full of gods of other religions. They were under fire from all different directions the Roman government, other religions. This was a tough place to be a Christ follower. They could have lost their ability to look after their families. They could have lost their livelihoods, their calling in life. Temptation must have been huge for them to fall into those ways, In fact, this is the accusation against the church, that they had let these false teachings and in particular the Jezebel spirit come amongst them and lead them astray. Now, the mention of Jezebel here is reference to the apostasy of God's people, and that story is found in 1 Kings, the story of Ahab, who was king of Israel at the time, who found that it was easy to follow the teachings and the ways of Jeroboam, and went on to marry Jezebel. This part of the story is found at the beginning of the reign of Ahab in chapter 16 of 1 Kings. This letter, therefore, depicts a temptation to compromise with paganism, to move away from that which is good in the eyes of God, and in particular, sexual immorality, sexual sin, and idolatry. The harlot that's mentioned in Revelation 17 and 19, later on in the book, references Jezebel. She was the one that led God's people into sin. This letter also reveals trib- great tribulations that were against those who did not repent of their ways. And I believe that this is referenced to the great tribulation, which is also referenced in Matthew Mark- Matthew 24. And again, I believe it was fulfilled in AD 70 in the fall of the Jerusalem. That same tribulation was to be like the three and a half years of tribulation which came upon Israel. Which came upon Israel in Jezebel's day, found in 1 Kings 17:1 and read again by James in 5.17, where it did not reign for three and a half years. All of Jezebel's children were to be put to death according to their own works. See without Christ, the Jewish nation were judged by the law and according to it. In Deuteronomy 29, we find a list of curses which would fall upon the people should they not keep the covenant that their God was making them. All those curses came upon them at the fall of Jerusalem. And if you read, there's another writer that writes around the time of the Gospels. A Jewish writer by the name of Josephus. Josephus, rather. A Jewish writer um, who wrote about Jesus. He writes quite a lot about Jesus. And if you read his writings, the siege of Jerusalem lasted for three and a half years. And that's all very well and good. That's a little bit of the history. But what does it mean to us today? The sins that are mentioned in this letter are those of sexual immorality and idolatry. You know, those are the two of the most secretive sins in the church. They're two of the most secretive sins that we have in the church today. And we're more active in the church today than we care to admit. If we are to clothe ourselves, or last week as we looked at, submerge ourselves in Christ then we have the power and the authority to overcome. But sometimes we miss it. And I think it comes all the way back to what we talked about last year a little bit, about who we really are in Christ, and about knowing what it means to be in Christ. See, we're not just a Christian. We're not just simply somebody who believes in Christ. We are a child of God. We are overcomers. We have the power and authority to stand against the plans of the enemy in our lives. We have the authority to destroy the enemy because the victory has already been won. The victory was won on the cross. Yet here we are today, and we live in a world where so many succumb to these things. Idolatry is a big one, where we put so many things before God. It's subtle, but yet so strong. we talked about this before a little bit, and asked the question of ourselves, if everything was stripped away where would we be if all this was stripped away, if this building wasn't here, if we were being persecuted for our faith? Would we we stand strong? Have we submerged ourselves in Christ in such that when these things come against us, we would stand strong? If things aren't going just quite the way we want them, are we still going to stand strong? You know, we often talk about idols, about idols outside that we have, our possessions. We often talk about them. Do we put our lives, our own lives, our jobs, our financial security, our homes, having a nice car, having a 60-inch television? Do we put all these things? Do we, we talk about idols and we talk about them in those terms? But I believe there are idols within the church that are yet so much more subtle. For example, me. The worship, the preacher, we come to rely on these things. I wonder if instead of getting up at the appointed time to preach the message this morning, I'd got up at the beginning of the service and preached. I wonder if I hadn't got up at all how would we react? Who told us the order of service had to be in this way? But yet, woe betide us if we step out a little bit and do something a little bit differently. What would happen if we introduced secular music into worship service? Probably give some of it palpitations. You see, I think the Western Church today, we have taken the things of God and we've turned them into idols that we can't do without. There is no such thing as secular music, you know that. There is no such thing as Christian music. It is the words that make them. In the UK, we used to begin our church service with a secular song every single Sunday. And that song then turned into a worship song using exactly the same words. We turned it around and I got our music, our music team to learn it and we played it as worship. We sung it as worship. It's called You Raise Me Up. It was sung by Westlife a few years ago, written by a, uh, a guy by the name of Ralph Loveland, Loveland. I've used a number of secular songs in preaching because the words are so incredible. I wonder if I mentioned the name Black Eyed Peas. Does that ring a bell to you? Not the sort of people you'd necessarily find in a church, but they wrote a song a a few years back called Where Is The Love? The words to that song are absolutely incredible. People who are searching for love, for God. I bet if I mentioned the name Katy Perry in here, a few eyebrows would raise because of what she stands for. But we see, do you know her history? Katy Perry used to go to church. She wrote a song just a short time ago called Unconditional. It's like the father singing a love song over our lives. Unconditional. Go and listen to it. It's an amazing song. Why can't we use these things? What happens if the worship team? You arrived at church this morning. And the worship team weren't here. What would happen? Would you throw a loop? Would you say, "Oh, what are we going to do now? How are we going to? How can we possibly have worship without a worship leader?" Would you go and try and get somebody with a guitar to come up and lead a few songs? You see. We have become dependent on other people to lead us to Christ. These, my friends, I believe, are idols in our lives that we have to address. My God is a God who just turns up. See, in the New Testament church, there was no worship leader. Where do we get worship leader, by the way? I think it comes from Old Testament. I think it comes from the place where they used to have people who led the the Israelite people in worship up to the temple. But Jesus wants us all to come to that place. I believe in a God of spontaneity. I also believe in a God of order. But the problem is, when we take that order and we turn it into something that we can't do without, it becomes an idol idol in our lives. You know, I've been in in many, many different churches, from the ultra-charismatic to the ultra-conservative, and every one of them, I could probably sit and tell you exactly what was going to happen when and how. And that's even in the charismatic churches that claim to be free and in the spirit and so against tradition. I could do that. We turn things into something that I don't necessarily think they're supposed to be. I look at the New Testament church and it was spontaneous. They didn't have a worship band. They didn't have worship leaders they didn't even necessarily have somebody that came and preached to them every week. They would sit at the feet of the apostles and listen to them teach. But there was spontaneity. If I had sat in my seat after worship and after communion today and not done anything, how would we have reacted? He'd have probably said sack him. Or somebody would say, Gordon, it's time for you. If I look at the New Testament church, I see spontaneity where they would sing spiritual songs together. Somebody would just start up in song. Somebody would bring a word. Somebody would read from the the Scriptures. You see, we've created structure. But in creating that structure, I think we've created an idol that we can't do without. Not one that we necessarily worship, but one that we can't do without. That is as much an idol, but it's subtle. It grabs you. We like structure. We like to know what's coming next. But I'm not sure that the God I know is like that. I think, if I go back to the time with the disciples, I think being with Jesus was like a big adventure. They didn't know what was going to happen next. And I think being in the New Testament church was an adventure. In fact, if you had people looking in from the outside, in fact, Paul addressed this in some of his letters to the Corinthians, if you had people looking in out from the outside, they would think there was utter chaos going on. What would happen if chaos came upon here? What would happen if God turned up? did something that was completely out of our realm of understanding. He did it in the New Testament many times. Miracles would happen. Signs and wonders would happen. And for people looking in from the outside, sometimes it was absolute chaos, but God turned up, and He was right there in the middle of it. You see, I think we've taken secular and sacred and we've separated them. There is no sacred, there is no secular. It's not, a new, it's not a biblical principle. We've taken this secular thing and think what we do here on a Sunday morning or whenever we meet together is holy. And we give it special place in our lives. That's not the teaching of Scripture. The Jews, in fact, we've, I think we spoke about this a little bit before. The Jews, in fact, had a special term for it. They called it Kavana. And Kavana is where everything they do is holy to God. Their whole lives are holy unto God. We take the Katy Perrys of this world and we judge them because of their lifestyles. We judge them without knowing their story. I encourage you, go sing that song, Unconditional. I sat and listened to it in the car. It was the first time I'd heard it in the car a few, a couple of months back, I was in tears because I, I was worshiping God while listening to a secular song. Can you do that? Can you worship God? You see, we have become so dependent on what goes on up here to lead us to that place of worship. We've forgotten how to worship ourselves. We've forgotten how. We've forgotten the art of worshiping ourselves in the quiet places. It's become a bit of an idol for us. We need to submerge ourselves in Christ. You know, for me this journey that I'm on has been an incredible one, and it still is an incredible journey. But it's so hard, folks, to, particularly for me, because I'm stuck right in the middle of this organized religious system that I'm part of and have been part of for a number of years of my life now, but uh, in stripping it all away, in peeling back all the stuff that I've held in my life as idols, unwittingly and sometimes even unknowingly, I'm discovering Jesus again. You see, the idolism that was talked about in this letter is rife in churches today. And we can all sit there and we think, oh, it's not, it's not, I'm not like that, I'm not like that. But just in the very things that we do often, it portrays the true heart inside. And when we strip it all away, it gets really uncomfortable. Really uncomfortable. But what comes out at the other side is like a beautiful butterfly coming from a caterpillar. We haven't submerged ourselves in Christ. All we know of Him, all we love of Him is what we read or what we do. We think, yeah, that's good. I had one person many years ago come to me when we were just in the process of planting a small church, and we had a whole bunch of unchurched youth would come to some of our services, and we were connecting with them, and we used to have an evening service, and they would come, and they would come in, sit 10 minutes, and nip out the back for a fag, and uh, cigarette. (laughs) I don't know, does fag mean the same thing? (laughs) No, okay, cigarette then, let's make that clear. (laughs) In the UK, fag, cigarette, just to be clear. But they used to lip out the back for a cigarette, and then he would come in again, and this would go on throughout the service, and one of my congregants would come to me and say, we don't want them here because they're spoiling our holy time. My goodness me, what, a, what an indictment. What an indictment. I almost told her that I would prefer they were here than she was, but I didn't. I, I resisted. I was young. I've learned so much since then. What an indictment. You see, we look on our our relationship with Christ as what we do and what we read of him. We've fallen in love with what we read about him, but our spirits have never actually connected with his. Our spirits have never got entwined with his. We've fallen in love with what we've read about him rather than who he is himself. This is why these things that we've talked about this morning, are, it, they find it so easy to infiltrate themselves into the family of God, because we've never actually really fallen deeply in love with Jesus. That's just idolatry. We haven't even touched on sexual immorality. You would not believe the sexual immorality that goes on within God's people, within the people of God, within those whose lives should have been transformed by the power of Christ. I remember going to a Christian conference that is run every springtime in the U.K., when I was first a Christian, I went as a counselor. I bet you cannot guess what the biggest thing was that people came for counseling. In a Christian conference. 85% of the counseling we did was to do with sexual abuse. 85%. It broke my heart. Sexual immorality, immor- immorality, is rife in the church because we don't know the Jesus. We don't. We haven't been captured by Him. We see it on a page and we read it and we understand in our heads, but our hearts haven't connected with His. I want to encourage you this morning to strip away all of this. Strip it all away and see where you stand with himself. Strip it all away. We're all, every one of us, on a journey. And you know, there's a promise at the end of this letter for those who stood firm. Now, it wasn't standing firm with the with a sword by the side, I'm going to protect all the good things of the Bible, and I'm, I'm going to protect the Word. It's more of a shepherd here that's going to rule, but there's a promise for those that have got their hearts that have cap- been captured by Christ. There's a prize, and the prize is Jesus, the morning star. and all the authority that comes from Him to rule the nations. And I said earlier, it's rule as a shepherd. It's not rule with an iron fist. You know, we've talked about this before too. Every new covenant believer has the ability to bring light into the darkness. We have been empowered by the spirit of counsel to go and do good works which have already been prepared for us in advance. Anybody tell me where that verse is? No, Ephesians 2.10. You see, we often read the first two verses of that, which is for by faith we have been saved, not by good works. And we miss out the bit that comes immediately after it that says because we have been prepared to do good works that have already been prepared for us. But these works are not a way of getting into God's good books. They're not a way of keeping us as good people, or as good Christians. These are works because of what God has done in our lives and transformed our hearts that rise up within us. We did a little project yesterday. That's why I'm a little bit of a limp this morning. I was shoveling and wheelbarrowing concrete all day for a guy who's a stepdad to a child who broke his back on a skiing accident. Teenager. And God connected us and I believe God connected us. He's not a Christian. He doesn't, in fact, he said yesterday, I'm going to go back and see him on the way home this afternoon. But he said to me yesterday, I says, I, I just don't know what's happening here. Maybe the stars have all lined up or something. You know what? I believe it's because God saw the love that he had for his stepchild, that he's been working on this pad and ramp so that to give him access to his own space downstairs in his house. He's been doing it all himself. And I believe God connected us together to bring about God's purpose in that guy's life. This guy doesn't know God, but I believe God is going to do a work in his life. And four congregations in Castlegar. I'm not going to call them churches, I'm going to call them congregations, four congregations came together yesterday to work the whole day laying this concrete slab and concrete ramp for him, and he stood there. He didn't know what to say. He didn't know where to look. He didn't know what was going on. And I'm not doing that to boast about what we did, but these are the things that rise up within us. When we see a need, we want to go and meet it because of who we've connected to, not because we think it's going to get us a place, an extra room in heaven or an ensuite bathroom in the mansion that Jesus is keeping us, keeping for us but because we've connected with heart. I'd never met this guy before I met him when we went to see the job a couple of weeks ago. But I believe God's going to do a work in his life. See, I've been discovering on this journey of mine, the more I entangle myself from the things of the past, And the more my heart becomes enveloped by him, the more helpless I become. But the more dependent on Jesus I become. You see, I could, if we stripped away all this next week and you just arrived and there was nobody here to lead worship, nobody here to preach, how would we respond Would we worship together? Would we be spontaneous with God? Or would we look around for somebody to take a lead? Because you see, we've become dependent on leaders. We've become dependent on other people to take us to Christ. That's old covenant. Because every single individual sitting in this place this morning can approach the throne of grace because of what Christ did on the cross. we don't need anybody else to come to the cross of Christ. We don't need anyone to take us to that place. We don't need anyone to lead. Sorry, worship leaders, I'm having a crack at you today, but you know, we don't need anybody to lead us into a place of worship. We can do it where we sat, without music. If our hearts come with that place, into that place, in our own place where we just worship God. We can worship God anywhere, even listening to secular music, secular music. I listened to that song, Unconditional, and I, there was tears streaming my face because I was just worshiping God and thinking, this is God singing a, a love song to me. And before anybody asks, I am young enough, by the way, to listen to that sort of music, okay? Just in case you're wondering. But the more I strip away, the more helpless I become. The more dependent on Christ I become. The more I'm spurred on to fall in love with Him. To allow His character to flood mine. And to become increasingly more like Him. By simply resting in Him and not striving. Just resting. There is a promise at the end of the letter for those that have their hearts so entwined with Christ that know the authority that comes in their lives to be able to stand against the enemy who comes against us. There's a promise that Jesus is the prize. Jesus is the prize. Let's just pray for a moment, shall we? Jesus, I pray this morning that you would just come, that you would come, that you would awaken our hearts this morning, awaken them to, the, to you, to who you are, awaken them to the things that so subtly have come in and encroached in our lives, that have become almost like idols in our lives. Father, would you awaken our hearts and our eyes and our ears to know Jesus? Would our spirits become one? Would our hearts become entwined? That we would be able to recognize these things that we've talked about this morning, that we've been able to recognize the things that this letter talked about that are going on in our own very lives, in our own very midst, and yet are so subtle. Would you help us to begin stripping them away so that we, on our own and together, can discover who Jesus really is? I just ask you to do this in Jesus' name. I ask you to do it in Jesus' name hallelujah thank you God thank you God